Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice. I think this will be my last episode for 2019. There's a chance that I will get to interview another poet interstate, but it's just a question of making that happen, making the calendar behave. So I'll see how I go with that. But for now, I wanted to do a little bit of a roundup episode here. I thought I would plan this episode around all the poems I've kept open in tabs on my phone, which sounds probably quite inane uh, to begin with, but I guess the reasoning there is these are the poems that I have kept accessible at the touch of a button just in case I needed them this year. And so I wanted to go through them and, and share them with you because I'm sure that there are poems that have fulfilled that function for you as well. And I thought it might get you thinking about which poems have sustained you throughout this year. So I did put a call out to listeners to see if anyone had any poems of this nature that they wanted to share. And I got a beautiful answer from one listener whose whose list was uh, much less US-centric than mine. So before I get into my poems, I thought I might share this list with you. This listener says that a lot of the poems that have been with them this year have been uh, elegies and asks the question, so why read them again and again if they're, if they're so sad and in some ways, you know, quite upsetting to read? But I just read the book Insomniac City, which is Bill Hayes' memoir of living with Oliver Sacks in the last year of years of his life. And there's a line in that where he says, I've come to believe that a good cry is like a car wash for the soul. So maybe that's maybe that's the reason why this particular listener is attracted to elegies. But this listener's list is, as I said, it's, it's a lot more um, centered on Australian writers, which I really appreciate because my list is not. So this list includes Fiona Wright's Small Sad Poem, France by Douglas Dunn, Ixion by Lex Banning, I hope I'm pronouncing that one right, The Company of Lovers by Judith Wright, Simplicities of Summer by Randolph Stowe, the second verse is apparently particularly important, Elegies by Margaret Scott, The Poet Asks Forgiveness by Faye Wiki. Tay the Fates by Kathleen Jamie. I think we've talked about Kathleen Jamie a long time ago on this podcast. And then also In the Boot of Someone's Car by Josephine Rowe. That's such a fantastic Josephine Rowe-esque title. And Cheap Red Wine by Bronwyn Lee. It's fascinating to have this list. I, I have no, uh, no further information on why these poems are so important, but I bet if you know one of them, you'll have a moment of recognition and connection with this listener. And probably you're also thinking about your own list of poems that have been with you throughout this year. You might not do it in the same way that I do. You might not have them sitting on your phone so that you can look at them every time you go to open a new tab. Um, Maybe they are in books that sit on your desk or maybe you just know where they are and you go to them on the bookshelf every now and again. But I, I am fairly sure that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have poems that fulfill this particular function. And it's not necessarily that these poems are impressing us in terms of their 
skill or what they're doing in terms of structure. I think these are just the poems that, like I say, sustain us. They speak to us. They are there for us when nothing really makes a whole lot of sense. One of the poems that is not on this list but should be is, uh, well, actually, it's a collection of poems, Terence Hayes' Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, which I actually slept with in my bed for a few nights. <laughs> it probably sounds really creepy. Uh, it wasn't a creepy thing, I promise. It was just I just needed that book to be uh, within arm's reach at all times, and so I had to bring it into the bed with me. So onto my list. The first poem that I have up in a tab there is Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And I was looking through it just then, trying to find a line that I that I go to and realized that's not the poem that I'm looking for. I'm looking for Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. These two poems sometimes get mixed up in my mind, but it's the sixth part of Crossing Brooklyn Ferry that I think about all the time. I've had it written up on my whiteboard for quite a few months in the middle of the year. And it goes like this. He says, It is not upon you alone the dark patches fall. The dark threw its patches down upon me also. The best I had done seemed to me blank and suspicious. My great thoughts, as I suppose them, were they not in reality meagre? Nor is it you alone who knows what it is to be evil. I am he who knew what it is to be evil. I too knitted the old knot of contrity, blabbed, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged, had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes I dared not speak, was wayward, vain, greedy, shallow, sly, cowardly, malignant, the wolf, the snake, the hog, not wanting in me, the cheating look, the frivolous word, the adulterous wish, not wanting, refusals, hates, postponements, meanness, laziness, none of these wanting, was one with the rest, the days and haps of the rest. And as Whitman does, he goes on in that vein, just listing and listing and listing forever. But I find that stanza really, really comforting. It's not that I want to be reminded that Walt Whitman specifically had, you know, guile, anger, lust, hot wishes, etc. It's that I need to be reminded that it's not just me who screws things up. And I know that intellectually. I I am aware of that, but sometimes I need to see it written down. And it is that listing and that kind of, you know, incantatory sort of repetition um, that Whitman has that kind of convinces you in a very specific way. And yeah, so when I feel like I'm the only person out there making a mess of things this stanza really helps the next poem i have up on my phone all the time is ashbury's some trees these are really original selections <laughs> like yeah i know i know that they're they're pretty standard some trees so i feel like this poem could be about just about anything i remember when we studied it with al phil reese he said that he had heard it read at weddings, even though he didn't think it was a love poem. And I'm not really sure that it's a love poem either. It's just so endlessly flexible and applicable to just about every situation. But the line this year that's, that's really meant a lot to me, and 
it's amazing how once you have this poem in your life, it just kind of morphs and changes. But the line that I keep coming back to, or the two lines, is that they're merely being there means something. There's been a lot of points this year where the presence or absence of someone has been really significant. And I haven't always been able to get what I want out of interpersonal relationships, I guess. But this poem reminds me that sometimes it's just the presence of of something or someone. They're merely being there means something. You might not be able to get everything you want out of a particular situation or interaction, but there's a significance to just presence. And yeah, I know that this poem is, is not an original selection. And again, every single poet in this list is American, which I'm not happy about or particularly proud of. But yeah, the, just the endless flexibility of some trees, the way that it just it just shifts and changes. And the more you get to know it, the more it kind of slips away from you. And then you, you find it um, applying to a totally different situation and... Yeah, I know that Asprey said we write poems in order to forget them. Part of me wonders, like, maybe this is, maybe this poem is entirely meaningless and maybe that's why it's so applicable to so many situations. But I don't know, I can't fully bring myself to believe that. But yeah, those lines, that they're merely being there means something. That's been, that's been really sustaining for me this year. The next poem I have up here is from W.S. Merwin, and it is just called Berryman. This is a really intriguing and quite fun poem in which Merwin, Merwin writes about his interactions with Berryman as a poet, as an older poet. It really made me laugh the first time I read it because there's this stanza about halfway through where it says, he was far older than the dates allowed for, much older than I was. He was in his 30s. He snapped down his nose with an accent I think he had affected in England. I really like that. I'm in my late 30s now and I, um, uh, yeah, I have a lot of younger friends. <laughs> and so when I read this stanza, I think about the fact that to them, I probably just seem, yeah, just ancient sometimes. <laughs> so I really, really like that bit. But I think the reason I have, I've kept it with me is um, the last stanza or the last two stanzas, actually. Merwin says, I had hardly begun to read. I asked, how can you ever be sure that what you write is really any good at all? And he said, you can't. You can't. You can never be sure. You die without knowing whether anything you wrote is any good. If you have to be sure, don't write. Yeah, so obviously I find that fairly useful as someone who is pretty often trying to write something that they think is halfway decent. Yeah, I don't know. I've spent so many years thinking about how, like, the distance between the work that I'm making and the work that I want to make and letting that either stop me from writing altogether or force me into writing a poem that I don't really believe in because I think it looks like someone else's poem. And I think in the last, you know, six months to a year, I've just sort of started to let that go a little bit and just write what I actually want to. I think I finally realized that, you know, there are other people writing those poems that, um, that I'm aiming for, you know, they've, they've already written them. And 
you know, it, it sounds so trite and obvious, but like I'm the only one who can write the poems that I'm going to write. And if I'm trying to ape somebody else, then it's only going to be a pale reflection of that. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm always happy with what I come up with. And I certainly don't know if any of it's any good. Sometimes people say nice things about the stuff that I write and that's great. But, uh, you know, yeah, like he says, you, you can't know. You can never be sure. You die without knowing. If you have to be sure, don't write. Yeah, perfectionism in artistic pursuit is... That'll stop you in your tracks for sure. I mean, the problem with that is that this poem by, by Merwin is is just great. So, like, he can he can shut up, basically, because he's, uh, he's writing a fantastic poem about not being sure whether he's any good. So, hmm. Next poem, Growing a Bear by Hannah Gamble. I did an episode on this right at the start of when I was putting Poetry Says together. Love this poem so much. And I think about it all the time. It is just such a creepy and weird and honest and um, specific investigation of actually masculinity, which is intriguing because it's written by a young woman. And it's also about the distance between where you thought your life would be and where it is, I guess, like lack of fulfillment expectations that aren't met and in the whole poem there's all these these uh, instances of miscommunication missed opportunities for the speakers to understand one another I also think about it specifically whenever I am riding my bike I I ride my bike um, not as often as I should but um, as much as I can and one thing that I absolutely hate is when I get passed by people in lycra and they're always yelling (laughs) always yelling passing at me as they're going by and they're yelling at each other and what i find hilarious is they're often having really intimate conversations at the top of their lungs and uh, these last two stanzas from growing a bear remind me of that and it just makes me laugh so hannah gamble writes you go on your weekly bike ride with mark and tell him that you've been growing a bear An 18-wheeler flies by, and he doesn't seem to hear you. Plus, he's focused on the hill. You think about how not all friends know what each other sounds like when struggling and breathing heavy. Past the age of college athletics, most friends don't even know what each other's bodies look like. Flushed, tired, showering, cold. Yeah, this poem is killer. I love it so much. I think another reason that I'm so attracted to it is it's a poem about friendship and friendship at you know as it says in the last stanza there uh slightly older age it's not like any huge revelation to say that it 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 does become more difficult to create and maintain intimacy as you get older and to make new friends and to have a depth of friendship with people that you would have had when you were in high school yeah and that's what this poem is really focusing on and again, just like with uh, just like with crossing Brooklyn Ferry, it helps sometimes just to have that expressed and expressed in such a beautiful way. You know, for me, the work that poetry does in my life is that it makes sense of stuff that isn't really spoken about satisfactorily in in uh, I don't know self help books or um, novels or anything like that. It's just yeah, something about the form just allows for 
the communication of these very specific and and quiet but yeah really important feelings second last poem i have here is by morgan parker so morgan parker's book there are more beautiful things than beyonce is one of the most fun and exciting and interesting books that i read all year and i think i bought it for at least two people it doesn't include this poem which is called now more than ever but on rachel zucker's commonplace podcast i got to hear morgan read this poem i think in an earlier draft and i'll link to that episode because the whole episode is fantastic and yeah this this poem which came out in the paris review in winter 2017 is uh well i guess it's a very it's a very 2016 poem it's talking about it's interrogating that phrase now more than ever which was bandied around so much in the early days of the trump administration but i think comes up a lot in um conversation between people who are uh, I guess the best way I can think of to put it is like newly woke, you know, <laughs> like they're just they're just kind of coming to grips with um, their political selves. I'm not, um, this is probably such a, like a silly thing to say, but I don't think of myself as a very political person or politically engaged person, nowhere near as much as I, I would like to be or feel like I should be. But when I heard this poem by Morgan Parker, I felt like I immediately understood it and the way that it was interrogating that phrase now more than ever, which always did kind of rub me the wrong way. Um, but I couldn't really put my finger on why and this poem just unpacks it beautifully. I'll just read this, this little section from it, which is my favorite bit. Subtexts then underscoring this phrase are quite sinister in nature, varying from your usefulness, Negro, is married to your misfortune and time is linear. The implications of which are that one, value is time sensitive, two, conditions of despair are temporary, and three, anything at all can be new, belonging exclusively to now and untethered to ever, i.e. past future. In the conversation with Rachel, Morgan talks about that idea that time being linear is, uh, as she puts it, white nonsense, which I really appreciate being someone who is A, white, and B, totally obsessed by the passing of time and how little of it I ever seem to have. Um, yeah. This is, this is like, this poem is ridiculous. I, uh, I can't, I can't really come up with a, with a more articulate description than that. And, hearing her read it so listen if you listen to that episode of commonplace you get to hear her read it and that is really 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 affecting i think it's a useful poem for anyone who considers themselves a liberal in a political sense to read and the last poem i have here that i keep up on my phone is by uh hanif willis abdurakib one of the funniest poets on twitter just quietly this is a poem of his that he got published in Poetry uh, in May 2018. But Hanif's book, I managed to find over on Sydney Road. Somebody at Brunswick Bound seems to have figured out that Hanif Abdurakib is, is uh, very worthwhile, which is absolutely true. And they have all his books over there, which is amazing. 
And so I managed to buy um, his collection, The Crown Ain't Worth Much. This poem isn't in that collection, but there are some really, really fantastic ones in there as well. So this, this poem, For the Dogs Who Barked at Me on the Sidewalks in Connecticut, is uh, sort of a typical poem of Hanif's in that it is, it's a big block of text, and instead of line breaks or stanza breaks, there's just slashes, and there's not any punctuation really either. Uh, a few commas here and there, but, but very minimal. It's got one of the greatest opening lines or collections of phrases here. Uh, it starts, Darlings, if your owners say you are not usually like this, then I must take them at their word. I am like you, not crazy about that which towers before me. I think this poem is fantastic in that it takes a specific subject and experience, i.e. being barked at when you walk past a dog, and finds within that so much in terms of uh, it's a poem about fear, it's a poem about connection, it's uh, it's about fear of connection, it's about um, being the kind of person who would rather push someone away than than allow them in. And partway through the poem, it continues, I know you all forget the touch of someone who loves you in two minutes, and I arrive to you a constellation of shadows, once hands. Yeah, it's just a poem about the difficulty of loving. Uh, it's always relevant to me. I suspect it's probably relevant to a few people who are listening as well. I don't think I'm alone in that. At least according to Whitman in Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, I'm not alone in that. Yeah, I just love having this the title of this poem even just staring at me whenever I go to open Safari on my phone. I guess I just see it there and just have a little reminder that it exists in the world. So as I said, I think this will be my last episode for the year. It's starting to feel, even though it is only mid-November, it's starting to feel like that Christmas crush is really upon us and... I am aware that you possibly have a lot on. So be kind to yourself if you can with that. And if you have poems that have fit this position for you in 2019, poems that have sustained you or just been really good company, feel free to send them to me and I will at least uh, tweet them out. So thanks to every single person who has listened to an episode of Poetry Says this year, who's sent me messages about it, who's approached me about it. I love meeting people in person who listen to episodes. And yeah, I'll catch up with you again in the new year. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.